0: So several weeks ago now, we started this new series that I've called Unsung. We're looking at female heroes in the Bible. Uh, we started in the very beginning. We looked at God's original intention for women and men to be in equality. We debunked some um, misunderstandings of uh, God calling the woman a helper and how that really is intended to be a, an equal, an equal. Uh, with the man. We looked at some records in the Old Testament of of women who served as saviors and rescuers, deliverers of God's people, deliverers of God's word to the people. Uh, Last week we looked at the ministry of Jesus and some of the women that he empowered and how he started to act in a way that was very countercultural, raising women back up to the vision of equality that God had for them in the very beginning and how that would have been... um, So different for his time, Uh, we saw how some of these women were benefactors, how they were disciples in a time when it was very uncommon for females to be disciples, to be able to learn. He sent them out to go and to teach. They were the first preachers of the resurrection, women were. They were the apostles to the apostles. Uh, And then this week, today, we're going to look at some of the women in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus, some women who served in different roles in the early church. In the first century, Uh, we're going to look at some names that maybe you've not paid a whole lot of attention to in the past, um, but names that uh, I think are important and deserve to have their stories told. And and so, some of this might seem a little bit technical to you, or might seem a little, uh, you know, detailed or or irrelevant. And but I want to. Something came across my attention um, just this week that reminded me how important and how relevant I believe this message in this series really is. Um, I saw in the news, um, there's a man by the name of Mark Harris. He's a former pastor uh, from North Carolina who is running for Congress in North Carolina. And uh, a sermon of his from a couple years ago came back in which he said this, He said, only one title is given to a woman in all of scripture. The title given to a woman is helper. And he goes on to explain that, uh, you know, it it may not be best for society to have women in careers and roles in leadership. And, And as we saw in the first week, he's already drastically... Misinterpreting what God says about helpers in the book of Genesis. But the rest of the sermon, everything else, this is just this is this is a reminder that bad theology has real practical consequences. And this kind of bad theology is detrimental to women. It it has negative ramifications for women. And so it just it was a reminder to me that this, this kind of bad theology is still prevalent. And so I want you guys to know better. Right, I want you to be able, when you hear stuff like this, to say, no, you know what, I, I, we've studied the women in the Bible, I know that that's not true, I know that God has a plan for women that goes beyond just being subservient helpers, uh, that being a wife and a mother is wonderful, but that not every woman is called to be a wife and a mother, and that there is a place uh, of equality for women, and this has always been God's intention. So I just, I just want you to know better, and this was a reminder to me that, that what we're talking about here really is still relevant in our day and time and in our culture, and And I want us to be uh, a church. I want us to be people who who know better and and speak better and and can correct this kind of thing because we want the women among us to to come to their full potential that God has for them. And that goes beyond just being what this man says in terms of subservient uh, helpers. They they have those. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, if if that's what a woman feels like she's called to be, to be a stay-at-home mom or or anything like that or, or to serve her husband. Like, Women can choose. Like, it's not to say that that's a bad role. It's just that to limit that to somebody, to tell them that's all they can be, or that's all they're called to be, can be very limiting on those to whom God has called to do other things. We recognize that, and so it's, it's important what we're talking about. So today, we're going to begin in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16. Uh, the, this was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. To the Christians who were living in the city of Rome, Paul was in the city of Corinth at the time. He was planning a trip to go to Rome, and he wanted to to raise some support so that hopefully the people in Rome could pay for his way to do some missionary work in Spain. And so Paul writes this letter to the Romans, sort of introducing himself there because as of yet, we believe he has not been there. He doesn't know a lot of the Christians there, so he's introducing himself, and he's explaining his theology. Uh, the, The letter... Paul's letter to the Romans is sort of considered Paul's magnum opus, if you will. It's, it's sort of his theological masterpiece where he really kind of unpacks so, so much of the great theology that we get from Paul. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and, and at some point we might study through it, but today we're going to skip to the very end. We're going to go to the to the last chapter in Romans, Romans chapter sixteen. It's a chapter that I often skips over. If I'm honest, you know, I would you know read through the Bible, I'd get to Romans sixteen, and Paul lists a bunch of names. That's basically all Romans sixteen is. Paul mentions a bunch of people by name. And so I would start reading that and be like, I don't know who these people are, and so I just sort of skip to the next book of the Bible. Uh, but recently, as I've begun to dug into that. As I've begun to dig into that and uh, study those names, I've realized that there's really some rich information there that helps us understand people who were vital to the, the growth and the success and the functioning of the church in the first century. And Paul calls them by name. And it's recorded in Scripture. And so I think you know, if their names were important enough to be recorded, you know, we might as well spend some time talking about them. So we'll start in verse 1, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in St. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So as we read through Romans and we get to chapter 16 and we hear this person named Phoebe, we should ask ourselves, well, who in the world is Phoebe. And why is Paul commending her? Right. Who is Phoebe, and why is Paul commending her to the Romans? It's a great question. Well, who is she? Who is she? He tells us she is a deacon in the church of Cenchrea or Centria. She's a deacon of the church of Cenchrea, which is a uh, was a little port city close to the city of Corinth, which was the city from which Paul was writing the letter to the Romans. So Phoebe is a deacon in a church nearby to where Paul is writing this letter. Now the word deacon in Scripture is interesting. The, the Greek word, and I try not to get too deep into the Greek on Sunday morning sermons, but the Greek word here has several different meanings. and its, it's base level it means servant, right it's, sort of, it's used often as of people who wait tables. Who serve food? That's the that's the the base meaning of this word deacon or diaconos in the Greek. But as scholars have tracked it through, and as we know in the church, the the idea of a diaconos as a deacon as a leader in the church developed over time as the church began to develop and develop what we call an ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is an understanding of how church ought to be structured, how church ought to be run, how it ought to function, and and leadership roles and all that. And so as the church progressed, different roles of leadership popped up in the church. One of those roles was the role of a deacon. Um, And at this point, most scholars who who write commentaries on Romans tell us that at this point in the church's history, a deacon was probably in official position of leadership in the church. So Phoebe is most likely functioning in a position of official leadership in the church. Here's how one scholar described the role of a deacon. They said, it describes a person with a special function in the pastoral and administrative life of the church. And such functions would most probably include pastoral care, teaching, and even missionary. So more than likely, at this point in the church, Paul is describing a woman who functioned with pastoral and administrative abilities in the church of Cancrea, a city near Corinth where Paul is. She was probably involved in pastoral care, teaching, and maybe even missionary work. Uh, Paul goes on to say, he says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people— and to give her any help she may need from you. Which raises the question, why is Paul writing to the Romans, who live a long way away from Corinth and Sincrea, why is he asking the Romans to receive Phoebe and give her what she needs? She's not, she's from Sincrea, the the most logical answer is that Phoebe will be traveling to Rome, and Paul is introducing her to the Roman Christians and saying, when she comes, I want you to take care of her. Now, most scholars who have studied ancient culture tell us that the language that's used here in terms of Paul's commendation of Phoebe indicates that she's probably the person who actually carried the letter from Paul to the Romans. Believe it or not, they didn't have email back then. Paul couldn't just write up this letter and email it to the church at Rome. While Rome did have a postal system, it wasn't nearly like our postal system. Most people relied on couriers. So if you wanted to send an important document to someone else in another city, you would have to send it via a courier. So the most logical explanation, and what fits with what we know from lots of other ancient letters in in the ancient world, was that they would send the letter with the courier, and in the letter, they would introduce the courier to the audience, so the audience would know that this person was a legitimate representative of the person who saw them. Now, based on other uh, ancient letters that we have, we know that selecting the courier to carry the letter was a really big deal that the person who sent the letter wanted to select somebody who would accurately represent the letter. Now, there are some prominent scholars who actually believe that it was the courier who read the letter to the audience. Because back in that time, not everyone was literate. Uh, As a matter of fact, most people couldn't read or write. so, So communications, like Paul's letter to the Romans, probably would have been read out loud to the church because most people probably couldn't read at that time. And so there's a chance that the courier was actually the one who would read the letter... But what we know for sure is that the couriers were often the ones who would interpret the letter for the audience. If there were questions about what something meant, it would be the person who was there with the writer, who received the instructions and carried it to the audience that would be able to provide answers. So what this indicates to us, if this really is the case, if Phoebe really was the carrier of the letter of the Romans to the Romans, she was probably the very first expositor of Paul's letter to the Romans. That's a pretty big deal, that Paul entrusted a woman to carry the letter and explain it to the audience, to teach them what it meant and what his heart was behind it. This is a pretty big deal. Phoebe may have been the very first expositor, at least the first authoritative, authoritative interpreter of Paul's letter to the Romans. She was a church leader, one whom Paul esteemed very highly, and so he entrusted her with this very important task of carrying this letter that we still benefit from today. We read this letter today, we benefit from Paul's teaching in it, and we do so because Phoebe was trustworthy because she carried it and she was very likely the first expositor, maybe even the very first reader of the letter of Romans to a public audience. It's a pretty big deal. Who knew that about Phoebe before today? Right, we we talk about here Romans is a big deal, which, which means Phoebe's a pretty big deal. Paul goes on to say something else. Uh, he says that she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. The benefactor of many people, including me. Now, this word that's that's translated benefactor here—that's how it's how it's usually translated in Romans. Benefactor, maybe patron um, or, or patroness. Um, but what's interesting? is that the, the particular word that's translated as benefactor here, the verbal form of that word is often used of those who function in authoritative and leadership positions. I want to give you an example. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Paul writes to them in this letter, to the Thessalonians, and he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you Who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. In other words, Paul is instructing the Thessalonians that they need to acknowledge and take care of their leaders, the leaders that God had placed over them, to watch over them, to care for them, to teach them, who work hard among them. Paul is telling them that they need to be respectful of their leaders. Now, uh, I I want you to pay attention to work hard among you because we're going to come back to that in just a second. But the, word I've un- the phrase I've underlined here, who care for you, in Greek, that is the same verb. It's the verbal form of the noun that Paul uses to talk about Phoebe. So for those of you, you know, it's been a few years since you've had grammar in school. Let me break this down a little bit. The, the difference between um, a, a, a noun and its verb form. So you have a runner, which is a noun. What does a runner do? Run. That's the verb, right? Runners, run. Swimmer, verb, swim. Swimmers, swim, right? Uh, we have some words that the same word actually functions
1: as a noun
0: and a verb, right? Parents, noun, parent. Parents, parent, right? The same word is functions as a noun as well as a verb. So what we have here is the same word, That uh, Paul uses as a noun to describe Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, he uses as a verb describing leaders in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12. What's even more interesting is that most other translations translate who care for you differently. The English Standard Version translates who care for you as who are over you. The New Revised Standard Version translates who care for you as who have charge over you. The Christian Standard Bible translates who care for you as who lead you. In other words, the word that Paul uses here is a word that's most often applied to people in positions of authority and leadership in the church. And he uses the noun form of that to describe Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 verse 2. In other words, I believe that Paul is indicating, by by calling her a deacon of the church, and using this particular word, he's indicating that she is a person of authority and leadership in the church at St. So we have evidence here that Paul works with and affirms and commends women serving in positions of authority, leadership, and teaching in the Bible. I believe that's what the evidence is pointing to here. Uh, and, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read to you next a quote from a man named Origen. Who's heard of Origen before? Okay. Origen was a, a, what we call a church father, a prominent theologian in the early centuries of the church. He was, uh, he was a, a church leader in the city of Alexandria in the 3rd in the century AD. Here's what he says about this passage uh, about the, the passage regarding Phoebe. This is his quote. Origin says, This passage about Phoebe teaches that there were women ordained in the church's ministry by the apostles' authority. It makes sense. I believe, I also believe that's what the evidence of Romans 16, 1 and 2 says. Origen, a first century expert in Greek, student of the scriptures, leader in the church, tells us this passage about Phoebe teaches that there were women ordained in the church's ministry by the apostles' authority. Not only that, Origen says, not only did it happen, but they ought to be ordained. They ought to be ordained into the ministry because they helped in many ways and by their good services deserved the praise even of the apostle. In other words, Origen is saying women ought to be ordained into service and ministry. It's a pretty big deal, especially those of you who know that there are, there are denominations and there are movements of Christianity who, who oppose the ordination of women. What we see here, I believe, I believe the evidence points to the fact that Phoebe was an ordained leader— in the early first century Christian church. And Paul knew about her, and Paul commended her, and Paul entrusted her to carry the very important letter of the Romans to the Christians living in Rome. I think this is a big deal. Maybe you think this is just, you know, maybe this is one of those sermons that I'm really excited about and you think, oh, well, that's nice. But, um, you know, I think especially in terms of you know, empowering our, our women today to serve how God has called them to see examples of them functioning this way in the early scripture. I think is very helpful. Uh, so we're going to move on now to uh, in Romans chapter sixteen, verses three through five. Paul greets another few people. Paul says, "Greet Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only that." Or not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Prisca and Aquila. Now, if you've studied through the book of Acts, you are familiar with this couple. We believe that they're probably a married couple. Prisca and Aquila, uh, Paul initially meets them in the, in the book of Acts, which is the story of the development of the early church, and we, Paul meets them uh, because they are similar, they're, they're co-workers of his, in terms of the fact that they are both tent makers. That's their trade, it's how they make money. But they're also believers. And so Paul, the Prisca and Aquila, Prisca is the wife, Aquila is probably the husband, are this husband and wife team who travel with Paul and, and work with him on his missionary journeys. There are also people that we know led house churches in three different cities in the ancient world. They led a house church at one point in Corinth, they led a house church at one point in Ephesus, and they led a house church at one point in Rome, as we see here. Uh, now, Paul calls them co-workers, calls them co-workers. Now, this is literally true. They're they're all in the same business, so to speak, of making tents, but he says co-workers in Christ Jesus. And this is a phrase that Paul often uses to refer to his partners in ministry. And when we read the story of Prisca and Aquila, you can, if you want some homework, you can read Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19 this week, and, and you can read about Prisca and Aquila and how they were partners with Paul in ministry. At one point, as a matter of fact, Prisca and Aquila meet a man named Apollos. Apollos had been given some instructions in the Lord, but he was lacking in some things. He, he had a little bit of his theology wrong, and so Acts tells us in the book of Luke, uh, chapters 18 and 19, I believe, that, that Prisca and Aquila, they took Apollos, who was a very skilled orator, but needed some help with his theology. They took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more excellently. In other words, it was Prisca... And Aquila, this husband and wife team, who discipled Apollos, who Paul tells us became an apostle in the early church. So they discipled Apollos together as a team. They both taught him. Now what's uh, really interesting is that this husband and wife team who led these house churches in these different cities in the ancient world, what's interesting is that almost every time they're mentioned in Scripture, Prisca is mentioned first. Her name is given prominence. Now, scholars who study this tell us that that is significant. It's significant that Paul would, uh, and Luke would mention Prisca first. The scholars who study this tell us that there's a, there may be a couple of reasons for that. First, it may have been that Prisca was a uh, believer first, and she led her husband to the Lord. It may have been that she came from a higher social standing, and so she, uh, she was given prominence. Others believe that she was listed first because she had a more prominent role in ministry. Right, so we have a husband and team that sort of, husband and wife team that sort of function as co-pastors of a church, but potentially Prisca is uh, more prominent in ministry, and that's why Paul names her first. We don't know for sure. Paul doesn't say I'm naming Prisca first because she's more prominent in ministry, but it's it's a way to make sense of the very unusual practice of naming the woman first. We know that they function together as partners and church leaders in ministry. Um, now, what's really interesting is that some scholars have actually made a compelling case that Prisca is the author of the letter to the Hebrews that we have in our New Testament. If you're familiar with the letter to the Hebrews in your New Testament, you know that it's anonymous. It doesn't say who the author is. It doesn't say, you know, Paul. He writes letters usually says Paul, an apostle of Christ. He identifies himself. In the letter Hebrews is anonymous. And there have been some scholars who have made a pretty compelling case that Frisca may actually have been the author of The Learn of the Hebrews. Now, again, that's not definitive. We don't know that for certain, but there's good evidence suggesting that that may be the case, which I think is a pretty big deal, right, if it's true, that potentially we have a woman who was an author of part of the New Testament. I think it's it's kind of cool. Uh, So we're gonna move on now. We're gonna meet somebody else. Paul says, Greet my dear friend, Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Then he says, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Now, what did she do? What was her very hard work? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know much about Mary. We don't know if she's one of the six Marys who's mentioned in the gospel. By the way, the name Mary was like, accounted for like 25% of the women who lived in that part of the world during that time. So there were lots of Marys back then. We don't know who this Mary is. We don't know exactly what she does. But we do know that the other times that Paul uses this phrase, works very hard, he's often referring to leaders and teachers in the church. That was the same word that we saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, when Paul says, acknowledge those who... Um, work hard among you. He's talking about the leaders. So it's very possible, there's good reason to believe that Mary functioned as a teacher, as a leader in the church at Rome that Paul is writing to. So he says greet her. Uh, Paul goes on in the next verse. We're going to meet somebody else. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles And they were in Christ before I was. Now this is a pretty big deal, right? If you read the New Testament, you know that to be an apostle is basically the highest level of authority and leadership in the first century church at the time. And so as I read through the the story of the development of the church in the book of Acts, it appears to me that the role of the apostles expands over time. It begins with the 11 who are still around (coughs) after the resurrection of Jesus. We read about this in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And then they appoint another apostle to fill the place that Judas was. They appoint a man named Matthias. Um, And then as the church continues to grow and spread, it appears that more apostles are then added to the group of apostles. We learn of a man named James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He becomes known as an apostle. We meet a man named Barnabas. In Acts, uh, we meet him first, I think, in Acts chapter two, uh, and then again he shows up later in Acts chapter thirteen and fourteen. Uh, he's called an apostle who travels along with Paul. And Luke refers to the apostles Barnabas and Paul. Uh, Paul, writing his letters, uh, includes Apollos as an apostle, and he includes Timothy and Silas as apostles along with him. And so, the body of the apostles tends to grow over time as the church grows and expands. And what Paul tells us is that this, these two people. Andronikos and Julia were outstanding among the apostles, right? Not just to be apostles, but to be outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before him. Apostles often functioned as missionaries and church planners. They would be the ones who would go to a new place and would... Uh, plant a church and would lead that church, and would establish that church, and then often, like Paul, would move on to do that with another church. So they were viewed as being the highest authority in the church at that time. Uh, I'm going to read to you a quote from another early church father. His name is John Chrysostom. Everybody say John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom. I'm sure you read his works last week. Right? Uh, he was a 4th century archbishop, uh, from around the area of Antioch. This is what he had to say about Julia in the Bible from the 4th century. He says, Oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she should be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle." In other words, John Chrysostom, who uh, in, in other areas still didn't want women functioning as bishops, but still said this woman must have been remarkable that Paul would call her an apostle. So what's really interesting now about Andronicus and Junia is the interpretation history, right? What happens somewhere about the 12th century AD, some scribe or translator started translating Junia's name not as feminine, but as masculine. In other words, in the 12th century, Junia got a sex change, and she was turned into a man. And people who read about Judy he thought that she was a man, and when they read about Junius—that's what they called her—Junius, I thought that was maybe some contraction. But what we know now from ancient evidence is that the name Junius for a man is nowhere to be found. Just, there's just no evidence of men named Junius anywhere. We, we see that this, this sex change happened in the Middle Ages, but for that period of time, while people assumed that Junius was a man, they had no problem including that person among the apostles. Right? It was just assumed that Andronicus and Junius were two male apostles. And that's how people talk about them. But as scholars started to uncover this sex change and, and, and rediscover that Junius was actually a woman, an, an interesting thing happened. All of a sudden, these, these people who had begun, who had thought that Junius, the male was an apostle, start retranslating this verse to make it say that, that this woman wasn't an apostle. They would, instead of saying they were outstanding among the apostles, they would translate it as they are well known to the apostles. So instead of including them among the apostles, they excluded them from the apostles. And the only reason they were doing that was because now we have evidence that Junia was a woman. This, my friends, is the theological tale wagging the exegetical dog. Let me explain that. The proper way to approach Scripture is to let what Scripture says inform our theology. We don't take a theological position and then twist Scripture to make it fit that. Okay? So if we have clear evidence that Juno was an apostle, we don't start retranslating that because we don't believe that we're going to be apostles. Right? If we have clear evidence that there was a female apostle, but we don't believe women should be in ministry, we might need to start adjusting our theology about women in ministry. Now, this doesn't really apply to us in this church for the most part, or the Church of God, because the Church of God has historically affirmed women in ministry. But as we saw from the beginning, and this pastor in Congress, Congressional candidate from North Carolina, this is still a big deal, this is still a prevalent theology. Uh, and and so then people now start talking about oh well well Paul is talking about a different kind of apostles in this verse like he he's talking about like messengers which again is just it's very silly we're 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 trying to twist this scripture to deprive Junia of her apostleship because it is clear now that Junia was an, a woman as we're going to see this happened uh, something similar happened to another woman we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but before we do that, I want to bring before you just an interesting theory that I came across in my studies. Last week, we looked at the women who supported Jesus, who were witnesses of his resurrection, and one of the women that we talked about was a woman named Joanna. Remember Joanna from last week? She was a benefactor of Jesus. She she was the wife of somebody who uh, served. Uh, in Herod's court, she left all that to follow Jesus, she financed Jesus' mission, she was there at the resurrection of Jesus, right, her name was Joanna. Well, a scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham, Richard Bauckham, has done some very detailed study into the life of Joanna and Junia, and he makes the hypothesis that perhaps Junia is the same person as Joanna. He indicates that their names are are so similar in, in the ancient languages, and that it was also very common for somebody who had a Hebrew name to also have a Greek name, especially somebody who functioned in both worlds, like Joanna did. Joanna was a Hebrew, she was a Jew, but she also functioned in the world of Roman aristocracy. So it would have been very common for her to have a name that was more Hebrew-sounding and a similar name that was more uh, Roman or Latin sounded. We see the same thing with Paul, right? At some points he's called Saul, at some points he's called Paul. Very same thing happening there. So he makes the case that Joanna, being somebody who would have been familiar with Roman customs, who probably had connections in the Roman world, that it's very possible that she is the same Junia that we read about in Romans chapter 16, and maybe even that she helped plant and lead the church there. Now again, this is is not definitive, right? The Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but there is at least some good evidence to support this, and I think it's it's an interesting theory to say the least. But what we have clearly is we have a woman named Junia, whom Paul says is not just an apostle, but is outstanding among the apostles. She functioned in the realm of highest leadership, and she excelled. And Paul praises her, and, and he says good things about her, and he of her. And I'm going to get to why this is important in a few minutes. Uh, But I want to go on, Paul, I'm going to jump forward to verse chapter, to verse 12, chapter 16. Here's what Paul says. He says, "Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. How many of you name your kids Tryphena and (laughs) Tryphosa? Biblical names, come on. Famous women in the Bible, right? Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Again, work hard in the Lord. The very same language that Paul often uses in reference to those in positions of leadership and authority in the church. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Right. So even if these women were not leaders and people in positions of authority, they were still worthy of Paul's commendation because of their hard work. In the Lord. And if Paul praises them, and it's recorded for us in Scripture, we should pay attention To their stories. But I think there's good evidence to believe that they even did function as positions of leadership and authority in the church. Uh, So I I encourage you this week go read through Romans chapter 16 and pay attention to the names. Right? And just count how many women Paul lists in Romans chapter 16 and how, how often he praises them. And we see that Paul really did encourage and support and praise women who served in the church in various capacities, both in leadership and in other positions. So we're going to jump forward to the book of Colossians. I am going to talk about one other woman real quick before I wrap this up for you. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul greets somebody else. He says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, the most natural reading and understanding of this verse is that Nympha would have been the leader of the house church in Laodicea. It doesn't make sense that Paul would greet the host, but not the leader. The most natural understanding is that she was also the pastor, functioning as the pastor, the leader of that particular church. Now, Nympha is another one of those people that somewhere along the line, people tried to maybe give her a sex change. And when she was understood to be a man, everybody believed that she was the leader of that church. But then, when it became clear that she was probably a woman, you see commentators start to to twist that again and say, oh, well, she was probably just the host," And they say things like, the fact that she's a woman indicates that she couldn't be the leader. That, my friends, is the theological tale wagging the exegetical dog. We don't do theology that way. We let what's present in the text inform our understanding. In our theology, so in other words, we we see Paul from apostles to deacons to house church leaders to those who work very hard in the Lord. In whatever capacity they worked in, we see women were very vital in the work of the early church. It seems, it appears, at all levels of leadership, authority, and function, women were a vital role in the early church. The church would not have been what it was; it may not have survived. Like it did if it wasn't for the steadfast dedication of both men and women working together, it seems, as equals, as partners in ministry. So, again, you might be asking yourself, so what? You know, what, what does it matter to talk about Phoebe and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis and Nympha? Just to name a few, right? I didn't even talk about Iodia and Syntyche. I, mean, I, I, I could talk for a long time about all the women that Paul mentions by name in his letters. What? Why does that matter to us? Well, as I showed you from the beginning, there are still people who seem to believe that the Bible teaches that women can only function in roles of subservience. And, and the, the subservient helper. Which there's nothing wrong with that at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us that those who want to be leaders need to be the greatest what? Servants. So I'm not knocking service here, okay? I'm not knocking service. All I'm saying is that Paul and, and Jesus seem to be elevating women and treating women and allowing them to function in ways contrary to how some people interpret the Bible. As we've seen in this particular message, it's abundantly clear that Paul knew about, worked with, and praised female leaders and teachers in the early church. It's abundantly clear that Paul knew about, worked with, and praised female leaders and teachers in the early church. Now here's why that matters. I'm setting you up for next week. Okay? Next week we're going to look at some of Paul's own words. That some people have used to, to say that women cannot function in positions of authority and leadership. There are some things that Paul says that, as we're going to see next week, taken out of context. Make it seem as though Paul is opposed to women functioning in positions of leadership and ministry. So this week I wanted to make sure it was very clear, looking at Paul's own words and the own evidence that Paul knew about, worked with, and praised women, leaders, and teachers in the church. So don't miss next.